All right. Good morning. If that didn't wake you up, I don't know what will. But I'm glad I did. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here at Trailside. We're so thankful uh, to have you guys here. Thanks for uh, not believing the news that the weather apocalypse was upon us and that everyone was going to fly off the road if they drove on anywhere. Um, you were able to defeat it. So good. Good for you. Hey, let me pray real quick and we will get started uh, right into 1 Corinthians this morning. Father, thank you so much because you're good and we trust you. We know that because you say you are and you've shown yourself to be. Uh, so Lord, I pray as we dive into the scripture this morning that it would be um, about what it is you're calling us to uh, because it's not easy. Um, it's not, uh, well, easy. <laughs> and um, that makes it uh, hard for us because we want life to be comfortable and we want life to be easy and it's not. So I ask that you would begin to move in our hearts and form it so that we would be willing uh, to be a little bit silly for you. Uh, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. So while we're speaking, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you would like to do that, we're going to be in the first chapter. If you're wondering where that is, you can basically get about three quarters of the way into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So uh, not too, too far into the New Testament. Um, but uh, I don't know about you guys, but I was kind of pumped for 2018 to, to be over. Anyone else? You're kind of like waiting. Like, this, this year needs to go away fast. Anyone been there before? Yeah, uh, I need this year to end. And I was, I was <clears throat> sitting down, consist, contemplating that, excuse me, going, I need, this, I need this year to be over. 2019 is going to be a, a fresh year. It's going to be something new. I realized something. I also was ready for 2017 to be over. And, and before that, I was pretty pumped about 2016 being over. And 15, and we all know how to count down, so I'll let you guys go ahead and continue that number venture. But um, what, I, what I realized was the, the difference is that when we see something that's very uh, marked and available, we can go, hey, a new year means old is gone, new has come. We can make some big decisions. We can be excited about looking forward to something that's coming. I'm going to put this behind me. Everything that was encapsulated in this rough moment I had, I'm putting behind me. I got something new to start. Some of it's unknown and full of promise. I'm going to start fresh. 2019 is going to be different. I'm going to go work out or eat better, right? Who's already had fried food? Me. Yeah. That's why I didn't make that. I was like, I'm going to eat Chick-fil-A and I'm going to enjoy it. and It's going to be great. So y'all can deal with it. Or we get to say a formal goodbye to the struggles of the last year because there's an opportunity in our minds for a rebirth, this kind of carte blanche idea that we're going to start this year out and that 2019 is going to be so different. <clears throat> Pardon me. And that's very much what our church plant has been as well. It's, it's been this idea that we're going to look forward to something new. We're going to be optimistically hopeful for what's to come. Because it's unknown, because it's not a measured thing. We're going to say a formal goodbye to the church planting phase of 2018. Going from a coffee shop to a gym where almost a year ago we launched and it was 53 degrees a week before we launched. Inside. Yeah. Thought I was talking about outside. Nope. Nope. Inside. Felt bad. I was like, I'm going to preach the gospel. And people are going to be like, I wish hell was closer because it's real cold in here. I could use some heat. It's a joke. It's a joke. Easy. Easy. All right. We're awake. Had to see. Welcome to church. 
And actually, we have our year anniversary coming up in a few weeks, which I'm really excited about. Um, Dusty, I know I didn't ask for this, but do we have that graphic? You just, I just want to show you guys how incredible our graphic and media team is. So um, Dusty, our guy who owns a media company and does all this stuff for us, created this incredible graphic that I want to put everywhere. Um, so that's our birthday party coming up in a few weeks. And uh, if you get a closer view, you can actually see the number one is full of pictures from our first year, whether it was uh, second serve Saturdays or church events or small groups and all kinds of other things, kids ministry. Um, so really, really excited about that. It's going to be happening in a couple weeks here. But, but we were optimistically excited about that future. We're looking forward to what God is going to do in this city and through this church. And what I've realized is that when we talk about the next year being really good, right, like the best year ever, like we're talking about today, typically, typically, the thing that happens is we get through that year and we go, God, I can't wait to put, a, put an end to 2019, ready for 2020. 2020 is going to be different. And I started thinking about that. And as we're going through this series, I was considering, you know, how do we actually make this the best year ever? Like, what, what can be different about this? And what I realized was, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm still dealing with a little bit of sickness here. What I realized was, it's the reason that we get to that point at the end of the year and at the beginning of the year is because we don't actually have a plan for it to be the best year ever. We just kind of go, hey, I'm going to work a little harder. I'm going to eat a little better. I'm going to run a little more. I'm going to be angry a little less. Drive on Woodruff Road a little less. I'm going to go on Facebook. And I'm not going to argue with people as much. <laughs> or Twitter. I've learned Twitter is just like Facebook. People just can't see pictures of your family unless you put it there. <laughs> right? I'm going to do these things. A it'll be a little better. <laughs> but the problem is that we can't, we can't just hope things will be a little better. You have to have a plan. You got to know where you're going. If you get in a car and you turn on the engine, you put it in drive and you go, I'm going to go to the beach. I hear I'm going to drive east. You'll get there eventually. But you might not have a hotel. You might not have a place to stay. You might not have anything to eat. Or you might not. You might drive west and all of a sudden you're going, how did I get to Colorado? I don't know. Because you have to have a plan. You got to know where you're going. And a good plan has a few things. A good plan has to have vision. If this is going to be your best year ever, you got to have vision for how you're going to get there. You got to know what you're going to do. If you don't have vision, then it's going to die. And in March, you're going to go, how did I gain 20 pounds? Oh, I've been eating birthday cake every day at lunch. It's the best way. You got to have vision. You got to know how you're going to get there. But here's what we don't talk about. And here's why we fail and why we slow down and why we don't actually ascend because good vision also has bad critics. <laughs> Every vision that's good will have critics. Every one of them. If, if your vision, if your goals don't have critics, they're not big enough. Like, listen, I, I don't have to go to my wife and be like, hey, I'm going to set a new goal today. I'm going to walk to the mailbox. I can do this. Not big enough goal, but if I tell my wife and I haven't, I'm going to run a half marathon because I'm not going to. Let's just go ahead. All right. If you're wondering if I'm telling you, like, Sean, you look svelte. No, it's because my ADHD medicine. Um, <clears throat> like, I'm going to run a half marathon. What? Well, that's, that's a big kind of goal. I have to have a plan. It's measurable. If I'm sitting on the couch 
watching football today, my wife is going to go, how are you going to run a half marathon? You got to have a plan and a, a big plan and a big vision has critics because you got to make some things change. But we don't like that. But guys, if we don't have critics, it's not special. If we don't have people who doubt us, then it's not big enough. And the third thing a good plan has is has sacrifice. This is really hard for us. All right. I'm going to do something right now that I may regret. Are we ready for this? These guys who have been to our church more than like five or six times are going, uh oh. It's okay. I know this is going to be a disagreement. We have to sacrifice some things for the good of other people. There is a huge, huge, huge debate on Facebook right now in the city of Traveler's Rest. All right, we're just going to name it. I get it. I know there's people on both sides of this equation here. But they are building this new area where these two warehouses were that are going to bring about 750 to 1,000 people into our town. That's a lot. Traffic, infrastructure, I get that. And I want to be very clear. I'm excited for one reason. One reason. That's it. All right? Because that's 750 people that we might get to baptize. I get it. I know. I know there's sacrifice. I know. I know everybody doesn't like it. That's okay. I still love you. And you still love me. Right? Because we don't want change. But we have to be willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to sacrifice. And the sacrifice has to be purposeful or it just becomes waste. Like if we're not willing to sacrifice things, if I say I'm not going to watch TV, so I'm going to go run so I can run this ultra marathon, I'm not going to run. And I just sit down, I, I turn off the TV, but I go stare outside. It doesn't do me any good. It's wasteful. A good plan has sacrifice that is worth the sacrifice. And last week, Mikey, one of our interns preached, and he, and he crushed it. Mikey was awesome. About how our promise, this thing that we're fighting toward is worth the process. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth having vision. It's worth having doubters and critics. It's worth pursuing and sacrificing things. That's where we want to continue because in order to have this best year ever that we want to have, everything we do has to have those three things. Otherwise, we're going to have the same problem where at the end of this year, we're going to go, 2019 has been hard. I can't wait for it to be over. Next year, I'm going to have money. I'm going to save money. I'm not going to go out to eat so much. Next year, I'm going to have this because I'm... And the start of every year, we're going to go, hey, this is going to be my year. It's going to be different. I'm going to do the same thing and hope for totally different results. And we're going to continue this horrible cycle because we're not willing to sacrifice. We're not willing to stick to vision. We're not willing to get through the criticism because our solution in these things is like, well, I want to have the best year, but I'm going to do exactly what I did last year. And when it doesn't happen, we're blown away because here's the real answer. And then we're going to get into the scripture here. Here's the real answer <clears throat> in order to have the outcome that we've never had. We have to be willing to do what we've never done. Say it again, in order to have the outcome that we've never had, meaning the best year ever, right? 
and whatever capacity that looks like in your life. In order to do that, you have to be willing to do what you've never done. It's called change. It doesn't have to be scary. I know that's a big word. A lot of people are scared of change. Ooh, we prefer the other C comfort. But guys, if things don't change, if we're not willing to do the things we've never done, then nothing's going to be different. And so this year, I want to ask you a favor. I want to ask a favor of you. I can't speak. I'm sorry. I want to ask you to be a little bit foolish. I want you to stop worrying about what people will think. I want you to be a little foolish. What do I mean by that? Well, don't worry. We have the Bible. I'm not asking you to go around and do something crazy. But if we really want our city and our county to change, we have to be willing to do things that might seem a little bit foolish, a little silly. Especially those people who don't get it, who don't understand, who don't have that same vision, who don't have that same purpose. It's going to seem a little weird. And before I read this, I want to say this too. I think what we have to know is if we're truly going to be a church that's different, right? That's actually making a difference. If we're, if we're honestly in for that, then some of our biggest critics may be church people. All right. I know it's not, this is not like the, my most popular way to start a sermon. I get that. Okay. Hang with me, hang with me. But if we're honestly willing for this to be the best year ever to baptize people, like we did 11 people last year to see our city change, to get our location moved into town so we can be a little bit bigger and a little bit, if, if that's our honest goal, we have to be ready because some of our critics might be church people. Here's what I mean. Let's read first Corinthians one. Pardon my cough. I'm so sorry. Starting in verse 18. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. (coughs) Pardon me. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than them also. Wow. Wow. Who would have thought reading your Bible that Paul who wrote a large portion of the new Testament would say the Christ, that the cross of Christ is foolish, right? Who would have thought that that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work in our minds. Like when I go and talk about football and why I love the Browns so much, it seems foolish, like a waste of time, right? 
That's fair. That's fair. Because it's not eternal. It doesn't matter. To most people, they aren't concerned about the Browns, a football team in the NFL, because it will perish. And here's what Paul says. That same level of foolishness is what people who are perishing consider the cross to be. Consider Jesus to be, because there's no value. But here's what Paul's dealing with. Paul is speaking to the, the church in Corinth and the people in Corinth, and he's talking to people who are stuck trying to, as MacArthur says, baptize human ideas with God's wisdom, with scripture. Is that not exactly what we do today? I mean, consider that, right? Like we have taken our culture and we have tried to fit God's word into it and say, well, this is what I know about the world and culture as it exists, So now let me see what scripture says about it. Instead of doing what we should and what Paul calls us to is to view the world through that scripture and say, here's the brokenness of mankind. Here's the hope people need. How do we go into the world and fix that? It's a, it's a total shift in perspective for us. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Pardon me. And this is what was happening in this day. The Greek philosophers loved getting around in circles and debating each other and answering big questions with bigger questions. And they really were good at building themselves up. Have you ever talked to somebody who just loves to tell you how smart they are? Anybody been there? I have. I've looked in the mirror. I understand. Right? And at some point, you're like, I just wish you would get to your point. I don't care about, about B to Y. Just go A to Z. Give me what you're trying to say. So imagine being in a room with 40 of those guys all trying to outwit each other and answer questions like, why do humans exist? I would fall asleep personally. I'd probably get mad actually and then, and then fall asleep. But, but that's Paul's talking to guys who love to sit around and just pontificate about thoughts without any true answers. In fact, in Acts 17, I want, to, I want to read this to you because this is what Paul's dealing with. And I'm trying, well, I'm trying to build this case that nothing's really that different right now, okay? Acts 17 and verse 22, this is what Paul says. <clears throat> so Paul, standing in the midst of the, of the, oh my gosh, Oropagus, I can never say that right, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For I passed along and observed objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I will proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he goes on and speaks consistently of God's goodness and what he's done in the cross. And so Paul's talking to these people. He's saying, listen, you don't have to worry about what brings salvation, the purpose of life. You don't have to pontificate because it's right here. It's the cross. And to those who are perishing, it seems foolish. It seems silly. Because these people were saying true salvation is the understanding of man. It is, excuse me, true salvation is our own ideas and our own morals and our own guide. He's going, no, it's it's not. It's, it's, It's just Jesus. The answer, the hope of everything is the cross. 
or to the Jews who he was preaching to. They, they, they consistently said, oh, well, yes, salvation is in Jesus, but also you've got to follow these laws and these rules and these regulations. You have to present yourself. If you're going to come to church, make sure you're washed up. Thank you so much. Make sure you're washed up and clean, that you follow the guidelines. And Paul says, no, no, that's not the cross. That's not salvation. That's not Jesus. Because when it's Jesus plus anything, it's not the gospel. It's the same thing with love. When we say we love people, but then put rules and regulations and obligations on them, it doesn't become love. It becomes obligation. It's not truly love. And so Paul's in this consistent battle with the religious people of this time who are saying, well, true salvation is in man or true salvation is Jesus plus all this stuff. And I read this stuff and guys, <clears throat> maybe I'm simple. I don't, I don't know, but I read this stuff and I see today's culture 2000 years later. I see really religious people who want to really be good, but just miss the gospel a little bit. And they say, well, well, true salvation, a true Christian would love Jesus, which I'm good with. Okay. Same plane, same train here. They would love Jesus and they would blank. A true Christian would love Jesus and not listen to bad music or not drink or or a true Christian would love Jesus and vote one certain way or another. And that goes both ways. So I'm not making a political statement. Okay. Or a true Christian would love Jesus and dress a certain way or a true Christian would love Jesus and not struggle. A true Christian would love Jesus and have a full bank account, be healthy not struggle with disease and sickness. A true Christian would love Jesus and wouldn't battle with things like anxiety and self-hate and disorders and disease, confusion. But the, the reality is, guys, that's moralism. That's not Jesus. And Paul's saying as these men are trying to complicate this gospel, and say it's Jesus plus all these things. Paul says, no, it's foolishness because it's so simple and easy. The cross is that clear. It doesn't have to be Jesus and anything. It just is simply Jesus. And we're still fighting that today. And, and that's maybe that's the lens that I see this through, but I still see, see people who say it's Jesus and this. I, I still see people who say true salvation is the self and the full acceptance of who you are and what you've done. But th this is moralism. This isn't Christianity. This isn't the gospel. It doesn't save people by saying it's Jesus and then you trying really hard. It doesn't save people by saying it's you and who you are and just how you're created and that's what it is. So go do your own thing. That, that's not salvation. That's not hope. That's not comfort and peace that's promised to us. That's not eternity. That's just self-sufficiency. And, and if we want to get into an argument about Christianity and truth, well, then let's not just talk about things like mental health or sexuality or struggle. Let's, let's just go ahead and run the gambit. Let's say gluttony. True Christian wouldn't be a glutton. True Christian wouldn't lie. 
True Christian would use their blinker and never break the speed limit. Anybody guilty of that? You live in South Carolina, just raise your hand. Yeah, nobody uses blinkers here. I, I, guys, I genuinely, I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was 19 years old in Charleston <clears throat> talking to a sweet lady who saw me pick up her grandson and drive too fast. And she told me that I was a bad example of Jesus to him because I broke the speed limit. And I said, what in the world are you going on about, woman? I said, you drive in the left-hand lane, 10 under. I don't want to hear from you anymore. <laughs> I didn't, that's, that's a joke. We're still awake, right? Okay. No, but seriously, because when we make Jesus about things like whether or not we follow the speed limit, it becomes moralism. And I'm not telling you to go break the speed limit, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if that's, if that's your, your point of judgment on whether you're really a believer or not, um, we should talk. We should seek to follow the law. Please hear me. Don't break the law and don't say, well, my pastor said I could drive however fast I want. No, I didn't say that. But if we love Jesus first and become more like Jesus then these things go away. And so I want to hit four very quick things today. I want to go through what Paul actually does say. First thing is this, that the gospel produces two crowds of people. So if you're taking notes and you want to write stuff down, which I encourage you to do, because every now and then I'll say something smart or something dumb and you can write it down and Facebook me later about it. The gospel produces two crowds. The perishing who see foolishness, foolishness and the foolish who see its power. Or the second is that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. The third thing that we see is that this is my favorite thing ever and I'm, I'm going to get excited, so just deal with that. Gospel simplicity breaks human complexity. Now, I know I didn't mean for that to be an Instagram quote. It just kind of happened that way, so... That's fine. I know I make fun of that. Gospel simplicity breaks human complexity. And where I really want to challenge us today, number four, proclaimed truth must bring displayed change. So again, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, when properly proclaimed, not Jesus and, but simply Jesus produces two groups of people. The proud who see the saved as the foolish and the foolish who see the power of the gospel as everything. See, the message doesn't change. No matter what side you're on, God created all things. God takes human form. God is crucified on a cross, on a piece of wood, on a nondescript hill, in a nondescript way, defeats death, is resurrected, and determines the destiny of every human who ever was, ever is, and ever will be in that moment. And that seems kind of silly. In fact, the, the Greek word that's used here for foolish to describe the saved person is moriah, which is the, how we get the word moron. All right. Now, listen, I know we've told ourselves the Bible is very pretty and clean and, you know, 
Like we can read it to our kids and not have to explain things. That's not the Bible. If you're looking for a book that's easy and fun to read, go grab yourself a Joel Osteen, Best Life Ever, and enjoy that. Um, Because that's easy reading. The Bible's not easy. This is where we get the word moron. Right? Moron. Moronic. Paul says that the gospel is moronic to those who are perishing. But it's power to those of us who know and love Jesus. Because the simple idea that the story of the gospel is something you can stake your life on without the actual power of the gospel is absolutely moronic. All right, I want to make sure you heard that whole statement clearly. The story of the gospel without the power of the gospel is moronic. If I stood in front of you and I was like, I'm going to go get crucified on a tree. You guys would tell me, no, that's dumb because it is because I'm not Jesus. And to those who are perishing, it seems silly that someone that God himself would come down and condescend and live as a baby and do all those things for the sake of you and I. And that seems simple. That seems foolish. That seems moronic. But with the power of God, and when we understand that properly and appropriately, it changes everything. <clears throat> As it should. But for the human that is perishing, the problem is that we're not the Savior. That's not based on our merit. It offers no place for us to be better. It's not based on my attainment and my success and my things, and my pride, and my cars, and my vacations, and my home, and my clothes. It's not based on any of that. It's not based on whether you go to Hall's Chop House every Friday and have an $800 filet. It's not based on that. It's based on Jesus. And if you do, invite me and pay for me, and I'll go, and it'll be great. It's based on Jesus. But that same story for the one who follows and knows Christ who has hope, who goes to other people and offers the gospel for the sake of the person, not the sake of themselves, and says there is hope greater than you. There is hope in eternity, that this isn't all you have, that you have a place at the table. To those people, that same story is everything. And everything means that we're willing to stake everything we have on it. Everything means that apart from it, nothing else matters. Everything means that we are willing to be foolish in how we display because it is everything our world needs. Everything. If we're not willing to give everything for the sake of the gospel, then the gospel isn't everything to us. Then it's just something. And guys, you want to know why we have so, so big of a problem with commitment and sacrifice and giving of ourselves and our finances and our time. While we are so consumed with ourselves that we're scared to put ourselves out there, and it's because if the gospel is everything, we'll be willing to give everything for it. And when it's not, we struggle. And we've told people, we've lived in a culture that says, you just do you, make the gospel fit. We've baptized our lives with scripture instead of letting our lives be lived through scripture and letting it touch everything around us. 
And I know that's really hard because I struggle with that too. I'm, I'm with you. This is not a Sean is up here because he's a pastor. This is Sean is just probably a little more aware of how much of an idiot he is because he has 150 people tell him regularly. Okay? Not really, but that's how it feels when my son tells me I smell funny. Which he did this morning, so stay away from me. No, but everything means, guys, that we're willing to be foolish. And how we display that it's everything because it's exactly what the world needs. Moving on to verse, verse 20. So where is the one who is wise? Actually, I'm going to read starting in verse 18. I want us to get the full context of this every time. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because here's the reality for us this morning, that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. Here's Paul saying, when honest problems arise, excuse me, when honest problems arise and we have to deal with life, rather than just sit around and pontificate and talk out loud about how we would do something different if we were in that situation, when we honestly have to deal with hardship and things that aren't easy and we seek truth and we're looking for hope and we look to ourselves, why does that continue to let us down? Where is God's wisdom when you are dealing with the hardest thing you've ever dealt with? Where is human's wisdom? What's the difference in those two things? See, human nature loves to do two things. We love seeing human consequence for actions, right? Come on, y'all with me? We love seeing that. There's nothing we love more than seeing people fall down because they run on ice, right? Because it's funny. It's like, well, don't run on ice. Watch the other 60 people in front of you. I know I've watched videos. I laugh the whole time. But we also love when we see people get what we think they have coming for them. We call it karma and we laugh at it. Instead of it breaking our hearts for the brokenness of people and it coming out in ways of evil and sin. That's hard. Listen, people are evil. Brokenness is real. We should never as believers ever be excited about someone dying and burning in hell. All right. That should not be a celebrated thing. If, if we truly understood the depth and the breadth of the pain of what it would mean for someone to be apart from Jesus forever and the torment of that, we would never celebrate that thing. No matter how bad we as humans decide that someone deserves it. Evil is evil. I would never say anything less than that. But Jesus overcomes evil. Every person has hope. But we love seeing human consequence. And on the other side of that, we love seeing human heroics, right? We see bad situations in shocking video and we go, wow, here's what I would have done differently. And you guys done that before? I have. Yeah. I'm like, boy, you want to walk up in a shop I'm in with a knife? I got news for you, buddy. Bad things coming your way. Because we love that self-glorification as well. Because man's wisdom. But here's, here's what God says. When all of those things fall apart, when life is hard, things are tough. 
What stands still? What stands strong? What gives hope? What gives peace? What gives comfort? What doesn't leave us? It's the gospel. Because Paul asks a very good question. And it's one that we still see today. And the moment that this isn't true is the moment that we don't need church anymore. Okay? Y'all heard me say that? You with me still? The moment that these questions are answered or the moment that we, we can stop. How much further along are we as a society today than we were 2,000 years ago in being better? How much closer are we to world peace? Listen, we don't have peace if you walk down the street and have a certain color on. We haven't gotten very far. How much closer are we to eliminating hunger? How much closer are we to eliminating slavery? You want to know something crazy? I got news for you. There are more slaves, more people in slavery today than there have been in the history of the world. Right now, this moment. That should shock you. How much closer are we to eliminating crime? How much closer are we to eliminating ignorance and poverty? How much closer are we to removing immorality from our culture? Here's the problem. We're not because we've defined immorality as not immoral at all because we've made ourselves the gospel. And I know you'll say, well, technology, technological technology and medicine are better. Yes, absolutely. Praise God. I, I yearn for the day when cancer no longer kills. My own father has Parkinson's and I I yearn for the day when something can change where he doesn't struggle. But here's what advancements in technology and in medicine have allowed us to do. It's allowed us to sin for a longer period of time and to do it through the internet. All right, that's what we do now. It's easier now to slander somebody. We haven't come further as a culture. The problem still exists and it will until Jesus comes back. And so I've had people tell me, oh, I bet instead you just think Jesus is the answer. Jesus makes it better. Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Congratulations. You figured it out. Circle gets to square. Yeah, that just, if, you, if you're younger than 25, you have no idea what that means. That's okay. Yes. I do think Jesus is the answer. He is. Because human wisdom sometimes sees the immediate issue, the immediate cause of the problem, but fails to deal with it at the root. And that's what godly wisdom does. See, we can't pull the weed until it's presented itself. And by then you got to dig deep and get the whole thing from the root, from the bottom. That's the only way we can protect the plants we purposefully placed. And that's the same thing in our lives. We'll cut the grass and cut the weed, but if we're not willing to dig in and pull it out from the root, it's just going to grow back. And Jesus, the gospel is the answer for the root, not just what's presented. Which brings me to my next point and my most favorite one that I got to really talk through. Quickly, because I know big boy. Country cooking's got a buffet up. It says that gospel simplicity breaks human complexity. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. I could spend an hour there, but we won't. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than that of man. See, God chose to use something that seems so simple, <coughs> so ridiculous, so easy, that it is obtusely viewed as foolishness, as moronic to save the very people who need it. And he does that simply because he loves us. See, the paradox of Christianity and, and its answer to the broken state of the world and the only hope that we have for people is that the simplicity of the gospel gives the complexity of human wisdom, gives what the complexity of human wisdom promises, but can't deliver. See, humans, we've told everyone that we've got it figured out. If you do this or this or this, it'll be fixed. But, but again, it doesn't get to the root. And what does is the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel solves every complex issue that humanity has. The question is, how can something so simple as a gospel solve something so complex as our sinful, selfish nature? And, and how can it cause such drastic change in someone's life? How? How can something so simple change everything? Because here's what the gospel does. The gospel reaches down into the depths of the wicked heart and it gives hope in every single moment and in every single situation and in every single decision. The gospel is a solve to the burning wound is the answer to each individual heartache and hardship. And all we have to do is believe it and live it. Because Jesus plus nothing is everything. And Jesus plus anything is nothing. But church, to be different, we have to do this. We have to make sure that proclaimed truth demonstrates displayed change. Listen, I could get up here and I could preach moralism to you and I could go till I'm blue in the face. I could tell you, oh, you want things to be better? Pray more. Believe more. Read more. Give more. Fear less. Serve more. Stress less. Judge less. Love more. If you want me to, I can give you a list of ways to kind of struggle more but look happier. That's what you want. I, I can give you a checklist of how to make life a little bit easier. But that's not going to change anything. All of those answers are summed up very clearly in one statement. And the question of if you want 2019 to be your best year ever, then I, here's what I want you to do. Let's be willing to look a little foolish. 
instead of working so hard at all the symptoms and all the things that present themselves, let's work really hard at listening and loving Jesus. Let's work really hard at trusting Jesus. Let's work really hard at being so much like Jesus that people think we look foolish. That when you do things and when you love people and when you forgive and when you give financially and when you give your time and when you go out to people and you're willing to do things that other people wouldn't, people go, why in the world? I mean, thank you, but why in the world would you do that? Because you're willing to be foolish because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's why. Church, I want us to be willing to do things that look absolutely ridiculous to anyone outside of the gospel. That's what I want. I want us to go out of our way to forgive people, like ridiculously so. That thing you've held on to that is destroying you, that you want to be mad about because someone did something wrong and you have every right to be wrong, I want you to really ask Jesus to help you forgive. And guys, I don't have the answer. I'm not God. I want you to love people who absolutely do not deserve it. Just like you do those who absolutely do. It's not easy. I know. That's why it's a challenge. But you want 2019 to be the best year ever? Don't stop holding people guilty. I want you to give greater financially, not so that we can build nice things and I can give my wife a Lamborghini. Although I saw one yesterday at the car show, they're beautiful. But because God says to, and because our heart's posture of thankfulness and trust, and that he's using you to change people's lives and eternities, that our heart demands it of us. This is why God says he loves a cheerful giver. Like if you're, if you're throwing a couple bucks in and you're angry about it, don't, don't. But if your heart's posture is that we change the city and change the community, and you can give to that knowing that God is using it to change and to make differences in people's eternities, and they'll be sitting next to you at the table, or maybe not, maybe they kind of annoy you and you want them on that end of the table. That's fine. Jesus knows that, but they'll be at the table. And that's worth it. Serve sacrificially. Give your time that you would normally spend relaxing on the couch or sleeping in your bed that I get it, it's really comfortable. But, but sacrifice those things so those who don't yet comprehend the gospel will think it's silly and then want whatever it is that caused you to do that. Because they've probably never seen it in action from the church. They've never seen it from the church culture of moralism and judgment and anger that resounds through our city and the Southeast. They've seen rules and regulations. They've never had anyone love them just because they're supposed to love them. That changes people's lives. Guys, when we love people because they're people and because they were formed and created in the image of God, that in Genesis, God created them, breathed life into them and said that he made them like him, and with a purpose and a hope. And we love people because of that, not because of anything else they've done. 
but because they are created by God to glorify God. Lives change. And when lives change, eternities change. And when you start changing one eternity and you see God move in a family, then it breaks the chain and the cyclical nature of our society and culture. And you've now made generations down the line people who love Jesus instead of what they were going to do, which is just love themselves. We change culture. And generations from now, we have kids who are not even born yet in churches proclaiming Jesus and changing the world because we were willing to love people who were created in the image of God decades before.